standing in the bank and watching them work. And the two guys down in the ditch said, you know what? Why, why do we have to be down here digging this ditch while he's standing up there under a tree in the shade drinking a drink? He goes, I don't know. The guy goes, I'm going to go find out. So the one guy sets his shovel down, climbs out of the ditch, goes up to his boss and says, hey, we're just curious while we're down there digging the ditch and it's hot day and it's humid and you're standing up here and you're just drinking a drink standing in the shade under a tree. His boss said, it's because of intelligence. The guy said, intelligence? He says, what's that? His boss says, well, here, let me explain it to you. So he walked over to the tree, he put his hand in front of the tree, he said, I'll tell you what, you go ahead and you just swing as hard as you want and you just go ahead and punch my hand. Guy winds up by now you're thinking he's going to want to do this anyway. So he winds up, takes a swing at him, at the last second his boss moves his hand, the guy punches the tree, and his boss says, that is intelligence. <laughs> so the guy climbs back down into the ditch and he's talking to his buddy, his fellow ditch digger, and he says, hey, what did he say? He goes, well, I said the reason we're down here is because of intelligence. The guy says, intelligence? What's that? He goes, well, here, let me show you. He goes, I'm going to put my hand on my face. <laughs> and, I, and I want you to take your shovel. I don't want you to hit my hand. And I'm thinking, you know, sometimes that's me. You know, it, it was, a, and it's so odd. And I'll tell you why I think that's me. That's me. And if you want to join in, that's fine too. But that's me every time I question God. Every time I question God, it's like he's going to remind me, hey, remember the story you heard about the ditch diggers? Why? Why are you there and I'm here? Just keep that in mind. Because, you know, there's a tendency on our part to question God. God, why do we have to suffer for doing the right thing? Why do we have to suffer because somebody else did the wrong thing? Why do we have to suffer because they made a wrong choice? God, why, 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 why? And that seems to be our natural inclination. The very first thing we want to do is question God. God, why do we have to, why, whatever? And it's kind of like God's way of saying, well, you know what, here, let me explain to you some things. And then you take into consideration that story about the ditch digger, and maybe we can get this resolved once for all. If you've got your Bibles with you, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 18 and go through the fourth chapter. And this whole section has been dealing with the question of why do we have to suffer or why are there times in our life where we're actually called or chosen by God to suffer for doing the right thing when it seems like so many people around us aren't even suffering when they do the wrong thing. And that's an interesting question. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 18 and we read these words. We read, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the prisoners, or the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It says, in corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts, drunkenness, carouses, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. It says, and in all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. It says, and the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Several years ago, my wife Linda and I had the opportunity to travel to a foreign country for the first time. And um, stepping onto foreign soil and in the midst of another language and culture can be a, a somewhat uneasy experience. And as we were on the plane en route from Los Angeles to Athens, Athens, Greece, we had uh, 16 and a half hours of flying time to be given some counsel by folks that were on the flight that had traveled before and had some things that they could offer us in return. And knowing that we are rookie travelers, uh, one particular couple kind of took us under their wings and said, hey, look, we want to just give you some advice. And as we're flying and they were sharing with us, the, the couple of things that they shared with us is a pretty sound counsel, actually, as it turned out. The first thing that they said was, listen, when you get there, you need to remember and never forget this truth, that you are now the minority and you are a foreigner, foreigner in someone else's house. You are a guest in someone else's home. And they don't think like you. They don't speak like you. They don't have the same cultural understanding as you do. And you need to remember, it's not your house, it's their house. And what was interesting, too, is that the other thing that really st stood out in my mind was as they were explaining these language and cultural and currency and all the differences that take place when you travel to a foreign country, they also said that, and another thing is, try to keep in mind that the people that meet you you may be the only person or couple that they ever meet from the United States. And it was kind of an adult version of be on your good behavior. You know what I mean? And as they were sharing with a lot of other people, they had a lot more concerns about the people we were traveling with being on their good behavior than us. But the point was, it was kind of like be on your best behavior. And some of the group that we went with were, to say, to say the least, let's put it this way. The people that hosted us on this trip could have just had a hangar at LAX, had a backdrop of the Acropolis, had an open bar, and those people for 10 days wouldn't have known that they went anywhere and thought that they were actually in Greece. That, that's all they would have had to do. So that was kind of like, you know, the, the group we were traveling with. But they were trying to warn them as, hey, you know what, you better not get in trouble because the laws are different, the punishment is different, and there's not much anybody's going to be able to do for you if you get yourself in trouble. That was some sound counsel. The second thing that they said was one that, that was just as important, I felt, and that was this. Listen, there are going to be so many things to do, 
and so little time to do it. You need to remember that when you travel, that time is a precious commodity. And if you want to see and do everything that there is that you could possibly do, then you want to make sure that you have an itinerary, you want to make sure you have a game plan, you want to make sure you execute it, because what's going to happen is, on your way home, you're going to be kicking yourself that, man, you know, we could have done this, this, and this if we were better organized. And so the purpose of all of these, the, these little tips that we were given, it was kind of like, you know, hey, you're in a different land, among different people, you have a short period of time in which to do what you want to do. Now, the reason I bring that up is I just finished reading a book, and it was written by a former ambassador from the United States to Spain under George Bush's presidency. His name is Dick Capon. And he wrote this book, and he gave an insider look at what it was like to be an ambassador to a foreign country under President Bush's administration. And one of the things that he, that he pointed out was this. He said, you know, it was really interesting to be a person on a, in a foreign land who was reflecting the values of my president. To be a person in a foreign land who was representing the values of the United States of America and her citizens. And the insider look at, you know what, and I realize my appointment is only for a certain period of time, and I've got some work that needs to be done, and I need to get it done and accomplish it, and I need to set some goals, never forgetting that, you know what, I'm a guest here representing the United States of America, representing President Bush, representing the citizens of America, and maybe the only view that people will ever have of the United States is how they perceive me and my family and our interaction with one another. It's a great, great book and interesting reading. And the reason that I bring all this up and put it all together is because I'm thinking to myself, you know what, what's our purpose here on earth? What's our purpose here on earth? And what are we supposed to be doing with the time that God has given us? Because as Christians, we face a similar, similar situation to that of the ambassador. If you stop and think about it for a second, the analogies are, are, are strikingly similar. And that is this, that our citizenship is in heaven. We don't, we don't belong here. Earth is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We represent, we represent a different kingdom. We represent a different king. We're on for, foreign soil. And I'm thinking that, you know, consequently, we need to be careful and on our best behavior, otherwise people will get a distorted perception of what our homeland is like. People will get a distorted perception of what our king is like. What our homeland is like. And who we are in the process. It's an old gospel song, and it's right on target when it says this. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. This world is not my home, and I'm just passing through. If you remember in our study here in 1 Peter, the first chapter, the first thing that Peter wants his readers to remember is that I'm writing to you who are aliens and sojourners and strangers in a foreign land. You have been spread out upon the face of the earth like seed that was thrown into the wind. And you're going to be scattered all over the world. And there's a purpose. And you need to recognize, as Paul said, that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. 
We are an ambassador like the ambassador from the United States to Spain represents the United States. We are ambassadors here on earth who represent the person and the work and the kingdom of God that's found in Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility and we have a short period of time that we are appointed to remain here to do the work of God. The problem is we need to recognize and understand what are we supposed to be doing while we're here. We are strangers here. We don't belong here. We are here for a short period of time. Now what's interesting is, if you don't think that's true, consider this. This is the latest Broadway production that is being ecstatically hailed as, quote, here's some of the reviews, the break, breakthrough musical of the 90s, the most exuberant and original American musical to come along this decade. The play is called Rent, and it's, quote, set among the artists, addicts, prostitutes, and street people of New York City's East Village. It says the leading characters are a drug-addicted dancer in an S&M club who's suffering from AIDS, a rock singer who is HIV positive. AIDS is the shadow hoovering all over all the people in Rent, but the musical doesn't dwell on illness or turn preachy. It's too busy celebrating life and chronicling its characters' efforts to squeeze out every last drop. The characters are a gay teacher, a transvestite, a lesbian attorney, among others. Philippians chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles... We need to kind of just not forget here. But in Philippians chapter 2, as we look at what the Apostle Paul says about the world that we live in, we read this in, in verse 12. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What? That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. What is God saying? We live in a world that is filled with crooks and perverts. That's what it says. And, it, and it's not that hard to, to realize how true that is. And we are to appear as lights in the middle of this darkness and this perversion. We have a purpose and a responsibility. And what's interesting as we go through all this is that, you know what, this culture really that we live in is as ungodly as it can get. Our culture has no desire to please God. Our culture has no desire to know God. Our culture doesn't want to be straightened out about what's right and wrong. We live in a day and age where each person does what's right in his or her own sight. And we need to recognize that God has left us here for a purpose and we're to demonstrate what it's like to be a, a member of another country or another kingdom. We're left here for the purpose to whet the appetites of people around us so that they have a longing and a desire to live where we're going to live. To be a part of what we're a part of. To know the King who is filled with love and mercy and forgiveness and to have the same joy and contentment and, and, ex and excitement for a kingdom that's about to be established and to be a part of all of that. 
We are here to whet their appetites. I'll give you a good example. Uh, my sister and her husband lived next door to a couple back in Maryland who had a foreign exchange student from Germany that stayed with them for the year. Uh, my sister, knowing us, uh, volunteered us at one point during a conversation with this young man who said, boy, you know what, I've always wanted to go to California. And my sister says, hey, that's great because my brother and his, and his wife uh, live in California and they'd love to have you come to California. And so she called and, and explained this to us and sure, we'd love to have him come to California. Anyway, this young man comes to California and now he's 17 years old. He's living in the United States. He's away from Germany. He's going to spend a year in this country. And you know, our, our purpose was to whet his appetite, not just so that he'd love California, that he'd love the United States, which he does. He went home and he's, he's suicidal at this point, uh, you know, in a joking way, I think. Um, but, but he misses the United States and he longs to come back. And the purpose of all of that, the story is to, to let you know that our goal here is to whet the appetite of people around us who would want to be a part of what we're part of. So they can say, man, you know what? I don't want to live in this dingy, dirty, crummy place anymore. I want to live over here. That was so much fun. It was great. And we took this kid around and showed him all over the place. And, and if, you know, see, some of you are from here and you don't realize how good here is. You need to go somewhere else for a while. So when you come back, you go, this is the greatest place. We grew up in Pennsylvania. We've lived here almost 20 years. Every day I drive around, I just go, I can't. I just go, I'm picture myself. I'm driving, I'm driving down over Jamboree, and I look, and there's the ocean stuff, and I'm going out to make a call and pick up plans, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I live here. This is so great. This is a great place to live. Now, that's different than some of you who are sitting in traffic going, hey, this place, hey, 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 It's like, what's a rain out? What is that? There's no rain outs here. This is great. This is a great place. That kid loved being here. And he made us see through his eyes how great it was where we were compared to where he was. And so we're to whet the appetite of people around us so they realize, you know what? God's kingdom is a cool thing to be a part of. Our God is an awesome God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. He's a God full of mercy. And, and even when you're a sinner and a creep and just a pervert and a crook, He sent Christ to die for you anyway. Isn't that awesome? See, that's what it's all about. We're thinking, so we got this kid. He's here from Germany, right? And, and, and one day we just take him. And you talk about a kid doesn't waste any time. He was gone constantly. 15, 16, 18 hours a day on the go doing stuff. One day it was like to the movie, then to Disneyland, then out to dinner. And, and, it, and in the middle of the night, he's up throwing up and he's just, <laughs> he's having a great time, you know. And, and, uh, and I'm not, because my wife hates that stuff and I'm cleaning it all up. And I'm sitting down on this washing machine, putting stuff in at 3 in the morning going, my sister, I love her. <laughs> But so you, you kind of go, okay, well, what, what are we supposed to be doing while, while we're here? You know, what are we supposed to do and what's our hope beyond just wasting our life? Because, I mean, have you ever thought and stopped sometimes and go, what, what, am, what am I supposed to be doing? What's the whole purpose here? Is it to sell more product? Is it to employ more people? Is it to build a bigger company? Is it to buy a nicer house? Is it to play more golf? Is it... Is it to go to the beach more often? Is it to see every movie that comes out? I mean, what's my purpose in being here? I mean, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? And how do I know I'm not wasting my time? That's a great question. And you better be asking yourself that question. Because we need to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to be doing while we're here? 
And uh, we get some insight here from this particular passage. And the, and the first thing it really comes down to is this. Uh, we need to cultivate an attitude. We need to cultivate an attitude. And what I mean by that is very simple, and that is that, you know, there's four attitudes if we cultivate will help us not waste the time that God's given us. Because our ambassadorship is for a short period of time. I don't know if you realize that or not. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know how long this appointment's going to last. So we've got some work to do in the process. And the first thing that Peter says is he goes, hey, you know what, if you want to make the most of your time and you want to have hope beyond wasting your life, then you better develop an attitude or cultivate an attitude that is what he calls militant towards sin. An attitude that's militant towards sin. And an overhead that will go on nice and straight. Those are two important things. Attitude that's militant towards sin. Look what he says. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. It says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude or same mind or same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness, carouses, drinking parties, and abominable, abominable idolatries. Look what he's saying here. It's almost like he's saying, hey, listen, you're, you're, a, you're a soldier who's been sent to a foreign land. And you need to arm yourselves to have the same attitude that was in Christ, the same mind that was in Christ, the same purpose that Jesus Christ had. And you know what his purpose was? As you look at this, look back, it says, therefore, any good student of the Bible is always asking what it's there for because it's connecting the thought that preceded it to the one that he's now about to introduce. And he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He's our example. Remember as we were talking about, hey, why am I suffering for doing the right thing? Well, our example, our greatest example is that why do you think you shouldn't suffer for doing the right thing when Jesus himself suffered for doing the right thing? He's our ultimate example. He was the just who suffered for the unjust. One who knew no sin suffered and became sin for us. He's the ultimate example when we're sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves because we're being persecuted for doing the right thing. He's saying, hey, listen, you know what? Jesus suffered the just for the unjust. In verse 22 it says that who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. See, Christ died and suffered on our behalf, the just for the unjust, and it all ties together. And he's saying, therefore, since Christ died, the just for the unjust, so also you ought to arm yourselves in the same way. I like what one scholar says about this whole idea of arming ourselves. He says this, Peter exhorts the saints to arm themselves with the same mind that Christ had regarding unjust punishment. Since the Greek word translated arm yourselves was used of a Greek soldier putting on his armor and taking his weapons. The noun of the same root was used of a heavy armed foot soldier who carried a pike and a large shield. The Christian needs the heaviest armor so he can go and withstand the attacks of the enemy of his soul. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 6 for a second. There's another word picture that's given to us. This whole idea of having a militant attitude towards sin. Ephesians 6, 6 look at verses 10 through 13. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. We read this. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor 
of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes or the strategy of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the day or the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So you know what God's saying is? He's saying, hey, listen, Chuck, you're not here on some vacation, vacationing your way into the kingdom of God. You are in the midst of a spiritual battle. You have a responsibility, like a soldier that's sent to a foreign land, he must never get sidetracked by the sights that he wants to see. He is sent there with a purpose and on a mission. And oftentimes we are defeated because we get sidetracked doing other things instead of concentrating on what we're supposed to be doing while we're here. And so he's saying to you and I, listen, you need to have a militant attitude towards sin. We need to recognize we need to be prepared or to arm ourselves. And that's what he's saying. It's kind of like, you know, I've been in a lot of locker rooms and what's fascinating is, you know, when a guy's getting ready to go out and play a game or go out and battle, as they, as they say, you know, we got guys that go to the locker room three, four, five, six hours before a game so they can get taped, so they can get ready, so they can put on their equipment, so they can put on their uniform, so they can go out on the field, so they can warm up and stretch and exercise. And then you've seen that where you got guys smacking each other in the helmets and butting each other's heads and pounding each other. They pound each other before they even get pounded by the enemy, so they're ready to get pounded by the enemy. It's kind of like, you know what, they're ready for battle. They've prepared themselves. They're in a battle, they know it, and they're going out to execute the game plan. And the same is true of a Christian. What God is saying in this passage, in, in the New American, or actually it's the Living Version, He's saying this, Let's get ready to rumble! That's what He's saying. We're in a battle. Get ready to rumble because we are in a battle. So the problem that we have is some of you are thinking, Well, but why am I getting picked on? Because you don't know you're in a battle! When's the last soldier you ever talked to and said, well, they're shooting at us? <laughs> well, why are they shooting at us? they got these big guns and planes and all this noise. and Oh, I don't like it. They're shooting at us. That's how Christians do. Oh, wimpy Christians are doing that. We're doing the same thing. It's like, oh, why, why, is there, why is everybody always picking on me? Well, you know, it's kind of like that. Why are we getting picked on? You're in a battle! Do you not understand that? Be prepared for the battle. Because if you're not prepared, we're going to get sidetracked from doing what God's called us to do. Listen to me. Outlook determines outcome. The right attitude will determine the right result. The right attitude will determine the right lifestyle. It doesn't take, you know, what's interesting, how many of you, I mean, I'm sure you have, how many of you have gone into a movie theater recently? Okay? Have you ever walked in there after it was already dark? You always see people do this all the time. It cracks me up. They go in, they get their seats, then they send somebody else out to go get the chow. Then by the time they get back, because the line's so long, they walk in and it's already dark. And then you see them going like this. Hey! 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 Over here! Where? Where? Sit down! Where? Over, over there! And you can't see anything. But it doesn't take long to get accustomed to darkness. That's a whole message in that sentence. It doesn't take long to get used to darkness. Why should we develop a militant attitude towards sin? Because it doesn't take long to get accustomed to darkness. 
Number one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Why should I develop a militant attitude towards sin? Let me give you one great reason. Remember what sin did to Jesus. Remember what sin did to Jesus. Do you realize that it was because of sin that Jesus Christ came to this earth? That he suffered and that he died because of sin? The just for the unjust? Do you realize it was because of sin that Jesus came to this earth to deal with that whole issue of our separation from us and God? It was because of sin that Jesus died. Now let me put it in terms that you might understand better. Let's just say there's some vicious killer who breaks into your house, who grabs a knife, and he murders one of your children. Terrible crime. Now would you take that knife and put it in a frame and hang it above your mantel place? Would you take that knife and hold it and look at it and fondle it and admire it? I would think not. You would not want to see that knife ever again. You don't want to get rid of it. You don't want to bury it. You don't want to throw it away. You don't want anything to do with it anymore. Why? Because it, it reminds you of what that knife did to your child. What that murderer did to your son or your daughter. The same is true of sin. We have a militant attitude and approach towards sin because every time we see its results, it should be a reminder of the death that Jesus suffered on our behalf. We don't play with it. We don't admire it. We don't accept it. We don't make room for it in any part of our life. We eradicate it. We are militant toward it. We want nothing to do with it. Even when our culture around us says, you know what, you need to be more accepting. You need to be more approving. You can't be so judgmental. Hey, after all, to each his own. Right? Really? Breaks into my house and murders my child, I'm supposed to accept that behavior? After all, to each his own. You see what's happening to us? We're foreigners in a foreign land that's developed a foreign philosophy towards sin and the things of God. We need to recognize, we need to have a militant attitude because if nothing else, we need to remember that, you know what? It was sin that killed Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to realize is this, that, you know what? Our goal in life is not, is not to live the rest of this time according to the lusts of men. What's he saying here? He's saying, hey, the rest of this time that we have here, we're not supposed to be living it to please ourselves. We're supposed to be here to please God. And I meet so many people, and especially Christians, it's this mindset. It's kind of like, look at it says in verse, in verse uh, 1. Arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now here's what God's saying to us. He's saying, Chuck, Jesus died for your sins once for all. He eradicated sin on the cross. Now you still struggle with the sin nature, but your goal is to live a life pleasing to God and not be accepting of sin and have it as any part of your life. It would be like saying this. No prepared soldier goes into battle expecting to fail. No prepared businessman or woman goes into a new venture prepared, you know, expecting to fail. No prepared student enters to take a test you know, expecting to fail. 
No prepared Christian should ever enter into battle or to face temptation expecting to fail. What kind of loser attitude have we developed? What kind of mindset is that? I talk to many people say, yeah, but you know what, I just struggle with that and that's just the way it is. After all, nobody's perfect. Well, what kind of standard is that? Talk about setting the bar so low you're going to trip over it, yet alone try to jump over it. You're not going to jump over it, you're going to fall over it. We set this bar so low and it's like, well, wait a minute, you know what? Why do Christians go into life planning to fail? Because we have a wrong attitude. Because we're not prepared. We're not prepared to deal with what God says is truth. And that is that you and I don't have to sin anymore. It's a choice or a matter of disobedience when we do. Do you understand how, how true that is? We need to recognize that. Now, the third thing he, sa- he says is this. He said, hey, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let me give you a third reason why I, a third reason I believe we need to develop a militant attitude towards sin. Write this down. Sin wastes time. Sin is a tremendous waste of time. Why in the world do we run into so many of us as Christians who have this flippant attitude about this? Here's I hear. I hear people say this. Well, I was just backsliding. From 1962 to 1995, I was just backsliding. What? 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 What are we saying? What could have been accomplished in our lives from 1962 to 1995 if we'd have just been obedient and made the, the most use of our time? Sin is a tremendous waste of time. I don't know how many of us get sidetracked and start to do things we shouldn't be doing instead of doing that which God has called us to do, which is to live a life that's pleasing to Him. You know, we need to recognize and understand something. Let's take a look at some things here. Look at what he's saying. For the time already passed, hey, listen, any man's in Christ, old things what? Pass away. All things become new. The first thing he says is this. For the time is already passed is sufficient for you to carry out the desires of non-believers. You've pursued a course of what? Sensuality which means basically no standards at all. Whatever you wanted to do, you did. Whatever someone told you was wrong, you justified it and you did it anyway and you find a way to somehow or another do it and rationalize it. There was no standards whatsoever. He goes on and says, hey, you know what? And what about lusts, which just aren't lusts as as we know it as far as sexual immorality, but we're talking about lusts that may have to do with greed, that may have to do with just pleasing yourself in some way to set aside our responsibilities, just do what we want to do when we want to do it. After all, life is short and I'm just going to please myself. That's what he's saying, lusts. He goes on and says, oh, I mean, my goodness, look at this. The uh, Drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's like a course at most colleges that I know. You know, it's core curriculum. It's like, oh my gosh, think about this. I mean, isn't that what you used to do before you came to know Christ? Isn't that where God's brought us from for many of us that have lived long enough and came to know Christ at a later age? It was like, that's my life! Now, let me just throw something out to you. 
If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's genuine, and it's real, your life better change. Your life better change. You're no longer to live to please yourself and your lusts and your drunkenness and your carousals and your drinking parties and your idolatries of putting anything but God first. That's not who we are anymore. And your life had better change. A genuine faith in Jesus Christ leads to a changed life. And anyone that continues to do the things that they did before they said they said some kind of prayer and they do it with no conviction on the part of the Holy Spirit in their life and they do it just as unashamedly and unabashedly as they did before they went to a promise keepers or a Billy Graham crusade or some church meeting and they prayed some kind of prayer but their life hasn't changed, then the prayer didn't mean anything. Because when we're genuine and sincere and the Spirit of God causes us to be born again spiritually, He opens our eyes to the things that we're doing that were wrong before God and we can no longer do those things without recognizing that there's something new and changed about my life and I can't do these things anymore. I'm uncomfortable and I feel awkward. There's something wrong here and I used to be able to go and party and tell the dirty jokes and watch the movies and do all the things that I did and I can't do it anymore and it's bothering me. Yes, that's great news. That's great news. Because you've been born again of God, not of your own will, not of your own doing, not of some prayer that you manufactured, not of some type of man-made or contrived thing. It was God who caused you to be born again, and as a result, your life's going to change. That's what he's saying. Now, in case you think for a moment that the people in your life are going to be happy for you and excited that you've come to know the Lord and that you've been freed from all this junk, guess again. You know why? Because, think about the illustration I just gave a moment ago, when you're in the darkness and someone walks into the room, have you ever been in a party? And it's dark and you're partying and somebody walks in the room not knowing what's going on there and they flip on the light? Hey, shut the light out! Would you shut the light out? Oh, sorry, didn't know anyone was in here. Shut the light out. Why? Because the light hurts your eyes when you're in the darkness. Doesn't it? Think about it. The light also what? exposes what you're doing. The light also what? Causes those roaches to run. <laughs> it does. It just does. The light causes the roaches to run. They're not going to be happy for you. They're not going to be excited for you. They're not going to say, oh, isn't that marvelous? Isn't that great? You've been freed up from all of that? Why? Why? Jesus said, because they love the darkness rather than the light. Why do they like the darkness rather than the light? Because their, eve, their deeds are evil. So you know what the light does to the darkness? It exposes what they're doing and how far off they are from the things of God. You know what our light does as we are in a dark world? It exposes their deeds. It verifies what God has said is this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It exposes the truth that there's none righteous, no, not one. It exposes our need for a Savior. And when we're living a life that's far removed from the things of God and the light shines in the midst of that darkness, that person in darkness has one of two choices. To be attracted to the light, 
to get down on their knees, to ask God to forgive them. I can't save myself. My life is a mess. I believe what you say, that I need a Savior. And God, please forgive me. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. You know what? We need brokenness before we can be born again. We need humbled by God before we can come to Him on our knees and ask for forgiveness. We cannot walk in arrogance down an aisle or pray a prayer that somehow Jesus is missing in my life and it's just one more thing that I need to try to fill this emptiness that I have. God doesn't do it that way. It's not Jesus plus all the rest of these things and now you'll have a fulfilled life. It is Jesus and Him alone. I have been crucified with Christ. Think of what Paul said. It's no longer I who even live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who was crucified and died for me. There's a brokenness there. A contriteness that gets down on our knees and says, God, I'm a mess! And I need You and only You. And that's what the light does in a dark world. And it causes proud and arrogant people who rebel against God to be able to recognize that, you know what? I need to be broken and crushed. And it's a broken and crushed heart that God welcomes into His home. You see, there's not much preaching anymore about repentance, is there? There's not much preaching about, there's not much preaching about uh, you know, being repentant, asking for forgiveness, about sin, about brokenness, about humility. Why? Because it's not a very comfortable message. Because we want to feel like we're in control and that somehow or another we'll decide whether we want to join God's kingdom or not. How foolish we are. That's not true. It's heresy. It's not biblical at all. It's baloney. We need a militant attitude towards sin because we need to remember that it was sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. The ugliness of sin that sent Him to the cross. We need to realize that, you know what? We no longer have to live in sin any longer. That we've been freed from it. We had our day. We sowed our wild oats. We experienced what the world has to offer and it was pretty shallow. It stunk. It didn't have anything to offer. That's why we were hungry for the things of God. We needed something that would be more fulfilling. We need to recognize as we go through this that, you know what? Sin is a tremendous waste of time. God has called us for a short period of time to accomplish the things of God and to no longer live for our pleasures, but now to live for the pleasures of God. God, what is it that you want me to do in the time that I have left to get it done? Help me to see it and help me to be obedient. And the second thing that we'll look at next time is, you know what? Don't expect the people around you to be excited about what God's doing in your life. We are in a spiritual warfare. And the enemy wants to keep people from the love of God. And God's using us to be a magnet to attract people to Jesus Christ and His kingdom. The question is, how are you going to be used in the process? And will you be used of God and, and, and to use the time that He's given you in a wise way? and fruitful manner. That's what we need to deal with. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together again. We just thank you for your word, for your message, for your truth. And God, if we leave here with nothing else but that one thought, that we need to be prepared for the spiritual battle that we're in. Stop whining and moaning about the fact that you know we're getting shot at, but to realize we, <laughs> when you're in a war, you get shot at. But you give us what we need to be prepared to fight the fight. God, help us to become people who have come to know you through Jesus Christ 
and have a radical and militant attitude towards sin. God, help us to become people who love only you and hate only sin. God, we just love you and we thank you for your word. And we just pray for the strength to be obedient soldiers in a foreign land to fight a battle that we know that the war has already been won, but we need to be obedient in the process. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.